pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you for uh, the blessedness of that beautiful hymn, Lord, that we can lean on your everlasting arms, that we are safe and secure in the Father's hand, as our Lord Jesus said, and that no one will be able to snatch us out of your hand, Father, because you are great. And Lord, we just pray now for your grace and your wisdom. We pray that you would instruct us and lead us and guide us as we study your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, well, we are back uh, in Genesis chapter 1, looking at um, the sixth day of creation and man. And uh, we, you know, we did so much uh, last week uh, talking about the image of God. Uh, we, we mainly focused on the image of God uh, and how significant uh, the image of God is in biblical theology. Ultimately, I guess just to recap, what we're saying is that the image of God was God basically creating man in his image to have the capacity to reflect his glory. And we saw the connection between image of God and glory of God all over the Bible. Uh, one, one scripture that really comes to mind is 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, where it talks about uh, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And of course, uh, there, uh, I think it's in verse 4, we're told that Jesus is the very image of God. And so the image of God really reaches the climax in Jesus Christ, who perfectly reflects and images God. Um, and, and, and to image uh, God was to spread his glory. Um, that was part of uh, the Adamic Commission, which that's what we're talking about here. The Adamic Commission um, is what was it that God had called Adam and Eve to do? What was their purpose? What was man's purpose originally in the garden, and it was to spread the glory of God to the ends of the earth by spreading his image. And uh, we get a better understanding of that now when we look at this language here of multiplication. Let's read verse 27 and 28 again, Genesis 1. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him Male and female, he created them. There's so much there that we can talk about in terms of a biblical anthropology, right? Ta- and ta- and, and, in terms of a biblical sexuality, what does it mean for man to be in harmony? Well, it's in the context of the male and female relationship, right? We can certainly develop a very uh, a robust uh, biblical theology of marriage and sexuality and identity and the things that are so relevant in our culture today. That's not our focus, but I just wanted to point that out. God blessed them, and God said to them. That's very important. God blessed them, uh, something that we'll come back to, and says, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the living thing, and and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Um, So, this is why I've chosen to outline the Edemic Commission in this way. The Edemic Commission being that God's blessing, uh, the image bears, that's part of it because it says God blessed them. And then God's calling for fruitful multiplication. That's going to be really the heart of our, of our study today. And then lastly, God's delegation of dominion which we talked about God's sovereignty that he delegated to man. And uh, you remember that we said that man, uh, in the state that he is in, in the garden, man is operating as a vice-regent of God, right? He is a vice-regent in the sense that he is a lower king 
uh, under the great king of heaven. Uh, and that is a delegated authority. In other words, man was to rule on behalf of God. Uh, that's what a vice regent or a viceroy does. He rules on behalf of a greater king. And uh, that's an amazing, uh, amazing concept in and of itself. But what I want to do is <clears throat> I want to talk about this concept of multiplication. Um, the blessedness of man as image bearer, this will also come into play when we think about um, uh, all of the passages that, that we're going to look at here. Um, you know, let me, let me just start out by saying this language of being fruitful and multiplying, filling the earth and subduing the earth, this language has a lot more to do than just having kids, um, uh, it, it is that it is God's natural design for male and female to come together in the context of a covenant of marriage and to produce offspring to the Lord. Absolutely. But what you find in biblical theology, which basically just referring to how this concept of fruitful multiplication, how this happens, what you find is that it, it, it actually becomes sort of a, of a code word or code language for something far greater. Uh, something far more spiritual is in mind uh, in this language of fruitful multiplication. Uh, when we think about this, um, let me just uh, read a passage to you out of Daniel 7. Because in Daniel chapter 7, I think what we see is we see the fulfillment, in a sense, of the Adamic commission in the vision of Daniel chapter 7 with the Son of Man. Let me read this to you, or you can go there. Daniel 7, beginning of verse 13, it says, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like the Son of Man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations of every language might serve him. His dominion was an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So what we're saying there is that as uh, Daniel is giving, given a vision of the messianic kingdom of God and the authority of Jesus Christ and his dominion over all things, right? Uh, well, what I'm saying is that this is actually the fulfillment of the Adamic commission. And uh, I guess I want to try to prove that to you. <laughs> now, this Adamic commission is something that, that we need to understand is passed down. So I hope you turn the pages of your Bible very quickly here today because you're going to need to. I just want to show you first, it is passed down to Noah and to the patriarchs. Ready? Genesis chapter 9, verse 1. God blesses Noah. Wait a minute. Language of blessing, right? The language of blessing is present in the Noahic administration, the, Ome the Noahic uh, covenant, uh, that Noahic epic of time, that history, of, that primal history, right? Where Noah is now the one who possesses this benediction. He is blessed by God, just like Adam and Eve were. And then it says, and his sons, and he said to them, what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, where did that come from? Right? That came directly out of the Adamic commission. And it's repeated now to Adam, or excuse me, to Noah, so that Noah, in a sense, becomes what kind of a figure? 
what does Noah basically become? Christ-like? Well, that's not wrong, but it's going in the opposite direction. What's that? Second Adam. A second Adam. He becomes another Adam, right? So he becomes another representative of a humanity on behalf of God. And this is, this is another thing I would stress, is that what's beautiful about the Noahic uh, arrangement here is that it becomes explicitly covenantal. So now the language of covenant is explicitly mentioned uh, in the Noahic administration. Now, it's a covenant of nature, of course, right? God makes a covenant with the world, with the earth, uh, so that the world will be uh, maintained and sustained uh, and preserved, right? What what does Peter tell us? Um, That the present world is being reserved for the judgment of fire, Right, that previously had perished in water. So one thing that the Noahic covenant does is it doesn't just preserve the, uh, maintain the earth. Right, seed time and harvest. Right, the seasons will not fail. But why is God doing that? He is preserving the earth for a latter day judgment through fire. Really remarkable, right? Because it wasn't like the Noahic administration came, the Noahic covenant was given, and man was in a perfect state. Far from it. Right, right after that comes the Tower of Babel. So immediately, the need for another judgment arises. And matter of fact, one uh, theologian has written a book just on that theme, that salvation is achieved through judgment. Uh, That's James Hamilton from Southern. Great biblical theology textbook. Um, How about Abraham? Turn to uh, Genesis chapter 12, right? This language of multiplication, fruitful multiplication, is then passed down to the patriarchs. Uh, Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3, you know this, right? This is embedded in the Abrahamic covenant. It says, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. Wow, there it is again, a presence of divine benediction, blessing, right? And make you a great name, or make, make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those that bless you and curse, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there the idea uh, is sort of embedded of multiplication. Multiplication. But maybe that's not explicit enough for Abraham. Turn with me to Genesis 17. It, it, it gets even more explicit than that. Um, and you come away with a sense after you look at all these passages of Scripture, we're going to look at literally scores. I would say probably the number, the number is in the dozens, just to kind of give you a, a, just kind of an idea, the numbers in the dozens, I don't know how many dozens, <laughs> uh, I don't know, maybe 50, 60 passages in the Old Testament that have some reference to the Adamic commission in terms of fruitful multiplication. And what I'm saying is that as you look at the Old Testament, it's just filled with the language of uh, the Adamic commission, which is remarkable because then you have to ask the question, Why? Is that an accident? Is that just sort of a stylistic thing that the authors of Scripture were doing? I say no. I think what God is doing is very intentional. I think what God is doing is that he is, uh, he is passing on the Edemic Commission until it reaches fullness and fulfillment in Christ. That's what's going on. Uh, Genesis 17, verse 2, right? Somebody want to read that for us so that I don't lose my breath altogether up here? Um, Verses 2 to 18. You there, brother? Sure. Go ahead. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Yes. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, 
As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between you, between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojourners. All sojournings, yeah. So, sojournings, sorry. All the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham. That's good right there. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, thank you. That's a big portion of scripture. Um, what do you guys notice about, by the time we get to Genesis 17, what has happened to that basic kernel of the Adamic commission in, in Genesis 1? What happened to it here in Genesis 17? Anybody expand on it based on Genesis 17 here? What other things maybe have been introduced? What has been connected now to it? Jonathan, do you have something? Yeah, just um, it's flushed out more from uh, from the just just Adam and Eve to the nations, right. you know, kind of a worldwide thing, very similar to what we see in Revelation 20, where it's called the people from every tribe, tribe, people, and nation, and that, you know, what Revelation is you know, saying there is actually a fulfillment in, uh, of the Abrahamic covenant, in that sense, and obviously, and I'd say ultimately of that covenant of be fruitful and multiply, is that God's bringing it full circle by Revelation. Okay, so... Jonathan introduces the idea that it is it is expanding to all the nations, right? Uh, I mean, in Genesis chapter one, verse twenty-eight, when he says, I, "You will be, you know, be fruitful and multiply," it didn't say because I'm going to expand you to all the nations, right? It didn't it didn't elaborate at that point to that extent, right? But now we are being directly connected with this concept. That yes, in fact, in, in, in fact, it does result in a global. I guess we can say, in a global, and I would say, in a transnational fulfillment of the original Adamic commission. Is anything else in Genesis 17 here? Is anything else introduced? Everlasting. What's that? Everlasting covenant. The concept of an everlasting covenant. So the covenantal element is now attached, right, to the Adamic Commission. How is God going to fulfill the Adamic Commission, which is Genesis 1, 28? How is he going to do it? He's going to do it through various covenantal administrations. That's how he's going to do it, right? Anything else introduced at this point? Anybody else? Yes, sir. Land, possessions. The land. Very important. Now, can, it, can somebody go back to Genesis 1, 28, please, for us? The land. Anybody there? Yeah. Who's there? Yeah. K-Dub, read it for us. It said, and God blessed them, and God said, them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and ever, every living thing that moves on the earth. Right. The Hebrew word ha'edetz, <coughs> right, is the word for land, right? It's the word for earth, right? And so immediately we're start, starting to think of the land promises that have now been attached to the concept of fruitful multiplication. <laughs> See what I'm saying? Everybody get that? Uh, where's, where's it at? Verse 8, Genesis 17, 8. 
I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And watch this, and I will be their God. See, I will be their God is going to be um, another aspect of the Adamic commission that is transferred beyond the patriarchs, beyond Noah, beyond the patriarchs, beyond Jacob, beyond Isaac, beyond, you know, uh, the 12 tribes. And then eventually it is connected to the formal theocracy. Uh, let's read Genesis 47, 27, because there what happens is already God is promising fruitful multiplication to the most primitive uh, the most primitive stages of the theocracy, right? Genesis 47, 27. Now Israel lived in the land of Egypt in Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. In chapter 40, uh, in chapter 48, verse 3, it says, Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz, and in the land of Canaan and blessed me. Uh, that language there. And he said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and numerous, and I will make uh, you a company of peoples and give this land to your descendants after you for an everlasting possession. Uh, again, Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. Now, definitely in connection to the Exodus and their captivity in Egypt and the whole episode there. But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, watch this, and multiplied. So again, Exodus, here we are now, Exodus 1-7, and they are fruitful and multiplying. Um, Exodus one twelve. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out. You guys see that? Exodus one twelve. The more they the more they multiplied, excuse me, the more they were afflicted, the more they multiplied and the more they spread out. Uh, why, why am I making a big deal out of the concept of spreading out? Right? What do you think when you think of God's blessing them as image bearers? And what were they to do? Right? They were to, in Genesis one twenty eight, they were to be fruitful. They were to fill the earth. In other words, God wants his people from day one to expand across the whole globe as image bearers. And here we are told that they are not just multiplying, but they are starting to spread out throughout the earth. This is going to reoccur. It's going to reoccur again. Just hoping I can find it in my notes. Because <laughs> i got so many pages of notes here. I literally uh, have verses where this Adamic commission language is found in Leviticus. Don't turn there. Let me just point it out to you. Leviticus 26.9. Again, be fruitful and multiply. Deuteronomy 7.13. God blesses them and they are multiplied. God blesses the fruit of their womb, etc., etc. And there it's really interesting because like Genesis 1.28, there's a reference to the animals. And how God is going to bless the, 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 the livestock and all of that of Israel. And again, 
Deuteronomy 7, in the land which he swore to the fathers. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will make you abound and, pros- and prosper in the, in the offspring of your body. He says here, in the land which he swore to the fathers. Again, he will bless the work of their hands, and you shall lend to many nations and not borrow. Hmm. Lend to many nations and not borrow. So is God just wanting Israel to be a good economic nation? <laughs> good economics? Why? What do you think that, that means, that he wants them to lend but not borrow? What part of the commission do you think that belongs to? He's going to bless them. He, their blessing? Dominion. dominion, right? He's giving them dominion over the nations in the sense of you will not be subdued under the nations. They will come to you and borrow from you, but you will not borrow from them. It's more than just smart economics. It's the fulfillment of the Adamic commission that the people of God are called to exercise sovereignty and dominion. So what is Israel? Let me, um, let me just, uh, just kind of enlarge this, what happens with Adamic theology, right? What you have now is that Israel becomes a kind of corporate Adam corporate Adam, that Israel as a nation is to fulfill the Adamic commission. Is there any evidence of that anywhere? Any idea where Israel as a nation is conceived of as Adam? Yes, sir? Would it be connected to um, the prophecy out of Egypt, I've called my son? With that kind of sonship language, or is it? Yes, it is. Of course, (laughs) Jonathan gets it again. (laughs) Where is that at, Jonathan? In Exodus. Kind of make it hard for you somehow. Exodus chapter Exodus chapter four, right? Exodus chapter four, verses twenty three and twenty four. There, I would say you have a very clear Adamic connection between corporate Israel and Adam, right? Because there, um, Israel is identified as what? God's son. God's firstborn son. Well, guess what? In Luke, I think it's Luke chapter 3, at the end of of the genealogy there that Luke gives, guess what? Adam is called the same thing that Israel is called, the son of God. Right? So just as Adam was a firstborn son, so Israel is now being called God's firstborn. Does this theology develop further? Yes, how? It's a Christ. That's right. So we go from corporate Adam to what? Messianic. Messianic. Gee, I messed that one up. Right? From corporate Adam to Messianic Adam. Now, you know that the Bible teaches that, right? (laughs) You guys are still trying to, I don't know about the whole corporate Israel thing. I would say it is because of the Adamic commission and because of the identification as a firstborn son and because Adam is called the firstborn son and because in other contexts, Israel is compared to Adam. Hosea chapter 6, verse 7, like Adam, Israel transgressed the covenant. Hosea 6, 7. But we know that ultimately this Adamic commission is ultimately going to be fulfilled messianically. Jesus Christ as the last Adam. The last Adam. 
Okay, let me try to... Let's go to the prophets. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to uh, Psalm chapter 8. So Psalm chapter 8 is a big one. Because Psalm chapter 8, if you read any commentary on Psalm chapter 8, immediately the commentators are going to connect you back to Genesis 1. You know that? You're studying John, uh, Psalm chapter 8, you are immediately going to be referred back to Genesis chapter 1, again to the Edemic Commission. Why? Because in Psalm 8, we are given the picture of the prototypical man, Right? That is to rule over the works of God's hands, right? Um, and this is what Israel was to be and was not. This is what the king of Israel was to be and was not, at least not perfectly. They both failed, right? Uh, Israel failed in its Edemic calling. The kings of Israel failed in their Edemic calling, Noah failed in his Adamic calling. Abraham failed in his Adamic calling. And what's the evidence of that? The evidence of that is that you still have sin. You still have the need for judgment, right? On the people. So the cycle is only broken in the last Adam. Only the last Adam ushers in everlasting righteousness to the people of God. Um, yeah. So Psalm 8, verse 6, you make him to rule over the works of your hands. What is man, right? You've made him a little lower than, uh, lower than God, or you can be translating that as angels. And you have, watch this, you have crowned him with glory and majesty. That's why we said the creation of man in, 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 in day 6 of creation is the pinnacle of the creation, right? And that's why the pronouncement of superabundant blessing is pronounced only on day 6. And God saw that it was very good, right? Once we reach the pinnacle of God's creation, which is man, which is man. Uh, again, the prophets in Isaiah 51, verse 2, uh, this, is, this is a big one. Let me read it to you. We've read it before. This is a huge one. Isaiah 51, beginning of verse 2, it says, Look at Abraham, your father, and Sarah, who gave birth to you in pain, when he was but one I had called, then I blessed him and multiplied him. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and her wilderness. He will make it like Eden. And her desert will be like the garden of the Lord. So eschatology, in the prophets, eschatology is a recreation that leads us back to protology, right? So that's what's... Have any questions or comments, anything at all? Also wanted to point out very quickly in that passage, Isaiah 51, verse 3, when it talks about Zion. What's Zion? Heaven. Heaven, right? But, 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 but what about heaven? Like, is there more to it? Would you define it in a different way than just that? Zion. That's our hope after all. I mean, right, right? Zion is, that is our hope. Right? So I would say, like, Zion has to do with heaven, but more important, not more importantly, but equally important is the people of God in heaven, right? In a state of, you know, glorification, right? The fact that it's connected to Eden and the garden of the Lord, just an aside, now, now here you can, you have total license to accuse me of, eh, I don't know, Pastor, because <laughs> I don't even know. But I'm just 
pointing something out. It says there that it will be like Eden, it will be like the garden of the Lord, and then look how it's described. There will be joy and gladness found in her, thanksgiving, and the sound of a melody. The sound of a melody. Uh, The reason I bring this up is because if we're talking about Eden being a temple to the Lord, a sanctuary of God, well, here we have a return to Eden, and the prophets are using the graphic imagery of sanctuary worship, right, in connection to the to, to Eden. Anyway, just a just a thought. I didn't find that with anybody, but um, anyway, let's move on. <laughs> Jeremiah chapter three, verse sixteen. Here's another one. What happens here is this. The reason I'm bringing you to the prophets is because when you get to the eschatology of the prophets, what you now begin to hear is the language of fulfillment, right? Where the Adamic commission is now being fulfilled. It's not just being promised. It's not just being patterned. It is now being spoken of in degrees of fulfillment, right? Totally different than what we found in the patriarchs, for example. There, it's God promising, you will do this, you will be this, this will become you, this will happen to you. The prophets are now saying, we will arrive at this, right? And they conceive of how that's going to happen. So, for example, Jeremiah 3.16, it says, it shall be in those days. And what are those days? Anytime the prophets speak of those days, two things are happening here. You have a reference to historical fulfillment and Eschaton. I'm just going to write eschaton. Okay, it's a reference both to a historical fulfillment and an eschatological fulfillment. Peggy, I need you. I need you up here. (laughs) Bad. (laughs) Right. So the reason why this is very important, very, very important for hermeneutics, is because when Jeremiah is talking about. It shall be in those days when you are multiplied and increased in the land. He is referring to a real historical event when God is going to bring the people out of Babylon and bless them and restore to some degree the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. They will rebuild the ruins, right? But it doesn't end there. There is also an eschatological fulfillment That picture of Israel coming out of Babylon back into Jerusalem and rebuilding the city is a picture, a typical picture. In other words, typology. It's a type. It's a shadow. It's just a picture of what God will do through Jesus Christ redemptively in the church. By building up the ruined cities. All that language. Give you one example of this, okay? Turn with me to Acts chapter 15. If you're not comfortable with talking like that, that, you know, uh, Old Testament prophecies about Israel rebuilding its city, being somehow fulfilled in the New Covenant Church, I just remind you that this is the way that the, the apostles thought. It's real fascinating for me, very fascinating. Okay, uh, what's going on in Acts chapter 15? Council of Jerusalem, right? Everybody should have that down. What's Acts chapter 15? The council. It's the council of Jerusalem where the, the, the apostles have to get together because there's problems in the churches and we need to figure out what are we going to do with these Gentile dogs that are coming into the people of God? 
Right? Do they, what part of the law do they have to keep? Do they have to keep the dietary laws? What do they have to do, right? Well, look, look here at uh, verse 13. You know the passage. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets, plural, notice the plural, the words of the, the, uh, of the prophets agree, just as it is written. And what does he quote? Amos chapter 9, Right? Well, Amos chapter 9, if you go back to the original historical context of Amos, um, he's talking about actual historical events that would transpire in the, the life of Israel. Not anymore, right? That's, that's back in that time period. It had its historical fulfillment. The apostles are saying that was indicative of what God would do at the eschaton in the last days through Christ. And what would he do? Look at verse 16. After these things, I will return. I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins. And I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from long ago. What is he saying? What he's saying is that with the, um, with the emergence of the new covenant church, the apostles are in, essentially saying this. God is building his latter-day temple. Um, <laughs> I didn't say latter-day saints. I said latter-day temple. What is that latter-day saint? But anyway, we'll leave that right where it is. Right down the street. Is there any other place in the Bible where it says that the saints, that the saints are the temple of God? Anyone? Anyone? Does it say that? It says something like that, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, somewhere out there. <laughs> there are passages, right, though? I mean, I can't even think of the top of my head where, where they're at exactly. I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Anyone who destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. Who? What's he talking about there? The church. What about 1 Peter? You are all living stones being built up into one house. That's talking about the house, the temple of God, Right? So, First Corinthians six. That's right. That's what probably the one I was thinking. First Corinthians six. Many, 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 many passages where it talks about the people of God being God's temple. So the apostles are seeing Jew and Gentile coming together in the new covenant church, and what that amounts to is the fulfillment of God truly, fully raising up the ruins of David. Isn't that incredible? Because when I'm in, you know, in, in Amos, and I'm just trudging through Amos, now be honest. You've read through the prophets, you've read through minor prophets, and you're in there and you're like, what in the world does this have to do with me? Right? Am I right? I've thought that many times. Where I'm trudging through some minor prophet, Obadiah. It's like, what does Obadiah have to do with me? <laughs> right? How is this relevant for my life right now? Well, there are many ways, right? But one of the ways that it is is that what they did is they not only spoke of historical fulfillment, but they also spoke of eschatological fulfillment, messianic fulfillment, new covenant fulfillment, however you want to call it. That fulfillment, guess what? We are participating in that right now. You know, I have to remind myself because, you know, I look at politics, I look at what's going on in the nation, I, I look at all the chaos and everything that's happening. I just reading today and uh, this morning, reading about... Um, 
the Olympics. How the Olympics, the uh, athletes are terrified of the Olympics. <laughs> uh, there's a, there, right where the, I guess the swimmers are going to swim. Did you hear about this? They saw a floating body floating in the, in the river where they were going to be competing. A dead body floating in the river. So the Olympics, the, the athletes are like, we really want to compete out here? You know? Um, the Olympic athletes at the airport, when they arrived, they were greeted by the police with signs saying, we cannot protect you. <laughs> That's comforting, right? <laughs> well, I just woke up today, and they're saying that Rio is um, sending out uh, nuclear uh, detect- detective devices. I don't know if Lynn could probably tell us all about this, but they're afraid of a dirty bomb going off in Rio during the Olympics, that the wow. terrorists are going to get a hold of a nu- nuclear uh, uh, you know, material, and they're going to set off a nuclear bomb. I mean, this is the world that we're living in, right? It's crazy. And then I think, for me, it's like, what is God doing in the midst of all this craziness? I'll tell you exactly what he's doing. He is rebuilding the tabernacle of David. He is rebuilding, he is restoring the ruins of his people. He is fulfilling all of these prophecies. He's building his latter-day temple, which is synonymous with his new humanity. What, what, is, what, is, what is the Edemic Commission all about anyway? Very simple. God wanted a humanity. But what happened? The fall, right? And so after the fall, very simple, here we are Sunday. I, I like to use the word Sunday school level. Well, this is a Sunday school level truth, right? After the fall, what is necessary is a new humanity that God has now have to build from all the nations of the earth, of the world. The Adamic Commission, even though Adam failed, the Adamic Commission remains. You ever think about that? They failed, but the commission remains. <laughs> Who's going to fulfill it? Christ. That's right. It's going to be fulfilled through Christ, through the church, through the people of God. Any other questions? Anything? Because there's so much here. Um, boy, boy, boy. i tell you what. I-, I wanted to point out something else. If you go to, for example... If you go to uh, Isaiah 54, okay, let's go to Isaiah 54, and there we are not just talking about um, the fruitful multiplication, but even touching on the delegation of dominion, Isaiah chapter 54, very important because it connects us back to Genesis uh, in a couple different places. Look at this, Isaiah 54, beginning of verse 1, right, we talked about part of this already, but it says, Shout for joy, O barren one, you who have borne no children or no child. Break forth in joyful shouting and cry aloud, you who have not travailed. For the sons of the desolate one will be more numerous than the sons of the married one, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Spare not. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your pegs. For you will spread abroad to the right and the left, and your descendants will possess nations and will resettle the desolate cities. Now, I have to be perfectly honest with you. I would read that before having uh, uh, an understanding of the Edemic Commission and how this affects everything. I would read that and be like, huh? <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, right? Um, strengthen your peg? <laughs> I mean, what does that have to do with me, <laughs> strengthening my peg? You know what I mean? We, we read these Old Testament passages, and we're so detached 
from them, the only thing you need is a proper hermeneutic, and then you feel the weight of what's being said here. Right? This is, in fact, connecting us back to Genesis. I moved my thing around here. One second. What did I do? Genesis chapter 28. So go to Genesis 28. There's two aspects of Genesis 28. This is an illusion going directly back to that, and that is why it's so significant for the Adamic Commission. Genesis 28, beginning in verse 4. May he also give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your descendants with you. It says that you may possess the land of the sojournings which God gave to Abraham. Now jump down to verse 13. Behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth. Watch this now. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you... And in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. That language spreading out to the west, the east, the north, to the south, that is an illusion that is found in Isaiah 54. That's what he means when he says, spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your descendants will possess the nations. Well, here we're told that your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. I will give it to your descendants, your descendants, your descendants. And in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. But of course, we understand this once again to be referring to two things, historically and eschatologically. Historically, Israel saw some of this. They saw fulfillment. They were in Canaan. Um, They did fight off their enemies. They did possess the land. But we understand, according to Galatians, that the prototypical descendant was Christ. The Apostle Paul makes it crystal clear. He didn't say descendants, plural. He said your descendant or your seed, singular. And then Paul makes it very clear that is Christ. Isn't that amazing? Genesis 28 and all these uh, uh, Abrahamic passages, they are talking about Jesus Christ. That's why I can connect myself to this. The broadening out So when I read Isaiah 54 talking about the peg, (laughs) I can suddenly see, oh, I see what God is doing. God is promising to give me a new heaven and a new earth, a land where the church, where the people of God are going to take absolute dominion of all of creation. Don't forget Romans chapter 4. I think it's verse 13. Don't forget that from the very inception of the land promise, which was given to Abraham. The apostles interpreted that not just as a national promise you know, extending to the borders of Israel, but what does Paul say? He says, remember that Abraham was to be made the heir of the world. The whole world. So see, the apostles saw that in that initial land promise was the promise of total global extension right, through Jesus Christ. Now, let me just say one last thing and I'll close because there's just, there's just no way. Let me just say this. What you're going to find, t- tell me if you can bear witness with this. Throughout the history of Israel, how many times have you read where it says they dispossessed their enemies? Right? And they drove their enemies out. 
they dispossessed the land. Right? Over and over and over, Israel is said to have driven out the enemy. The Lord drove out their enemies. Right? And that's all in connection to the land. What I am, what I would argue is that that language of dispossessing the enemies of God ultimately goes back to or, or leads up to uh, the triumph and the victory of Christ where Jesus uh, triumphs over our enemies. Let's try to understand that in the context of the commission, right? Adam was told to rule, to have dominion, right? Okay, so when the serpent is deceiving his wife, is he ruling? Is he exercising dominion over that serpent, that vile creature? I wish I was there. I could stomp him. (laughs) Of course not. We would say he failed in his commission to rule and to exercise dominion and authority. That was the prototypical enemy, right? And ever since then, God's enemies have been hostile to the people of God. Well, guess what? That hostility ends through Jesus Christ. First, what is First John chapter 3? I think it's verse 9. What does it say? Jesus Christ appeared for this reason, to destroy the works of the devil. Right? As the last Adam, he did stomp on the head of the serpent. He does dispossess all of our enemies. Islam will be judged radically by God. The jihadist, the persecutor of the church, the radical leftist, whacked out liberal that's trying to pass the most crazy anti-Christian legislation you can think of, and it's only going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. I mean, worse. Time, I don't want to quote Hebrews in that context, but time would fail me to tell of all the things that they want to do, right? All, we are surrounded by enemies, and we know that uh, Christ is going to give us the victory. That all goes back to the Adamic Commission. Any questions, thoughts, comments, observations? Anything that you have seen that I didn't see? Anything you think I failed to mention? Yes, sir? Romans 16. Okay. I was thinking of when we brought up the first one. Three okay. I don't know by heart what, which part. Uh, it speaks about us crushing the head of the serpent. Mm. Okay. Romans 16. That's right. 16. That's right. In union with Christ. Exactly. That's right. Very good. Very good. That's very good. Yes, sir? Um, just in, in re- relation to... The wording in Genesis of an everlasting being everlasting, it sounds very similar to um, the New Covenant. Yes, sir. That's how it's all materialized, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever like read in the Old Testament where it talks about I'll give you this forever, I'll put a, a, a you know a, someone on the throne forever, right? I will rebuild Jerusalem forever, and then you're like, well, I don't know, it's not right now. I mean, I right? I don't see it right now. I mean, go to Jerusalem. There's a pagan shrine on the Temple Mount. I mean, it doesn't look like forever. Well, that forever language is realized through the new covenant, which is called the everlasting covenant. That's how all those uh, permanent promises, those everlasting promises, that's how all those things will be fulfilled is through the new covenant. Uh, Did you have something? Last word. I'll give you the last word. Um, Well, I was just going to say that as you see in the Adamic Commission, um, just in the beginning, so you see in the last Adamic Commission, even to the church to make disciples to be fruitful and multiply in the same sense. And you see that even Christ is doing that in Acts, that he added to them day by day, or was multiplying them day by day. Yeah. And so you see that. Being... I have all those passages in their book of Acts, uh, especially I think it's chapter 12, chapter 6, chapter 19, where it talks about the word of the Lord was multiplied. Exactly. 
and the and, and the concept there being multiplied in the people. Obviously, it's not like the Bibles are multiplying, right? It's the Word of God is multiplying in the people, right? Uh, the number of the disciples are increasing, right? Mm-hmm. That is all going back to the Adamic Commission now being fulfilled through the church. That's the way that Luke, the great theologian Luke, that's how he saw it. The Great Commission, through the Great Commission, yeah. G.K. Beale calls the Demic Commission, he calls that the first Great Commission. <laughs> right? And now I see why. Yeah. That's exactly right. Okay, let's close because I'm way late and I'm way in trouble. So, God bless you.